welcome back to Grit. In this final episode of season four, we are really lucky to talk to director Nicole Cassell. We deep dive into the role of the director and her work on the award-winning series Watchmen and get insight into the complex world of high-end drama production. Great, so we're going to jump over to New York now to talk to director Nicole Cassell. We're really lucky to be able to have some time with you. Hi, Nicole. How are you? Hello. I'm well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you because I think the series that you worked on and, and predominantly directed, uh, The Watchmen, is probably one of my favorite shows from, from last year. So I'm, I'm dying to kind of pick your brains about the process. I'd love to jump in, particularly for the audience who are often starting out in the industry and so forth to ask about your perception of the role of director and you because I think it's a very personal thing how people look at direct directing and everybody's sort of approaches it slightly differently so I'd be really interested in, in, in what your take on on being a director oh, is. Oh that's a, a big question to start <laughs> out with. I mean as a director you are responsible for every single thing that shows up on screen from performance to props to costume design and a sound design, you know, the whole thing you're, you're presenting your vision, who you collaborate with and how much has every project has kind of different iterations of, um, you know, whether it's in a small indie film that you have full control over all the way through final cut versus studio movie versus television. There's all kinds of say ranges of collaboration involved. As director, right. I very much take it as my job is to to have an opinion on everything that the audience sees and hears on screen. Great, great. So when when you when you first come on board a project uh, and and maybe take Watchmen as a, as an example, what what's the kind of process that you have to go through in terms of getting a sense of your your vision like how do you take that script and start to migrate it to to how you're going to approach it what's the approach for that I very much think of it as peeling an onion and very very first Mm. read my my eyes are the first audience kind of I and I I I come to the writer as as that you know I try and say this is my experience reading this script and so the first thing I do is ask a ton of questions or give feedback. And with a pilot and a feature script, that's um, kind of taking, just kind of trying to get under the skin of the screen. And if it's right. a, a late episode of a series, then having watched everything and read everything up to that draft, again, I kind of see myself as the gift of, first impression this is what if this went up on screen this is the questions or thoughts that your audience might have so I really I try and do kind of a lot of questions of of story of character of motivation backstory and I think backstory applies both to characters and locations you know with Watchmen it was very much we had to write the rules of this new world Hmm. it's an alternate present tense. If I'm reading sci-fi or anything, you know, you have to define the rules of this world. And and yes. then and then it goes through a, a big wave of of all the creative logistical things from choosing locations to casting to costume design, prop design, making all of those creative choices until that moment when you get on set with the actors 
And then that's that little crystal in the middle where all of the magic, all of that work of peeling layers, layers, layers comes back to this moment of when you say action and the actors do their thing. And that's like this just it's an extraordinary moment because it's weeks, months or even years of labor coming to life in that in that take. Great. And 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 I'm particularly interested in like like particularly when you when you're on set with actors about first time directors sometimes they start to use actors slightly as meat meat puppets sometimes and like and don't always know about that that dialogue you have or how you work with the actors and it it must vary with how 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 do you approach it with actors in terms of the collaboration and how much do you tell them what to do or how much is it about having a dialogue I suppose it, it, it's a an area that not many people get to see an insight to. So, Well, I studied a lot of acting when I was in film school because I really felt like being able to communicate to actors was the most essential element and one I had the least experience with. I was not an actor. I hadn't studied acting. I did not enjoy acting classes. Yeah. But it felt, um, I think, because it was the most uncomfortable place, it was where I felt I needed to spend the most time studying. You know, I had a history of yeah. visual arts, whether it was painting or wood carving and a lot of photography. So right. there, when, and it's interesting, when you're in film school or in an acting course, they'll train the actors that you don't want to be told where to go or how to stand or when to sit. But I've actually found that's not the case in most of my experience. And that when the actors arrive to set, they really do want guidance. And I think because it's right. it's not a play, because it's a visual medium where you are synchronizing the work of the actors with the camera, it's important to have in your mind how you how the actors move, but to be totally willing to throw that all away. So the way I work is when I read that scene and when I start shot listing and storyboarding, I act it out either in my head or in the physical space. And, and the most fun time in prep is when with my AD and DP and any crew member who's willing, we go and we, we act out the scene because we, we have so much planning to do, especially with a show with Watchmen like Watchmen where it was so um, strongly conceived and designed the shot, the, you know, this shot work. Yeah. So I always have in my mind how I would like or how I think the scene should play, but coming from what I think would be the character's motivation, I always have right. character driving that. And often I find, you know, actors come to set, we read this, the lines, and then I just say, this is what I was thinking. But again, I'm I'm more than open to input from the actors or finding out if you learn very quickly if that is not how an actor works. And I'd say most importantly, even before that day on set, it's essential to meet with your actors in advance to talk through the scenes, yeah. talk through their process, and just to get a sense of how they work, whether or not it's an actual rehearsal or just a sit down and leaf through the script. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you you raised a really interesting point about like prep in terms of of shot listing and and the staging of it. One one of the biggest 
uh, struggles I find with, with with students approaching this is really, I, I think so many people watch film and think of it as shots. And it's a lot of people struggle with coverage and like how to plan coverage. And I, I was re-watching the, the Tulsa massacre scene and really blown away by the coverage of it because it, it goes really big and then you go really small into the character's mindset. But how, how do you plan out kind of coverage and obviously having time restraints and so forth do you do a lot on set or do you really meticulously plan it beforehand I definitely am a meticulous planner because time is such a pressure cooker and because when you're on Mm. set it's a public setting it's my job to stay very centered and be open to creative inspiration but I try and do a lot of that in advance so that I can be as relaxed as possible. With the Tulsa massacre, it was kind of a combination. It was, that was insanely, incredibly meticulously planned because we mm. wanted three days. We had a day and a half. And number one, though, was for safety, be, to make sure we were being as, as safe, both emotionally and physically as possible. And, you know, we had mm. a set that was like straight down one block around a corner and then another corner. And I wanted to run it live, like, so that it felt as visceral as possible. And so we broke it into three or f- into four sections. So we would on action run from the theater to point B. And it was through the car pulling up and them hiding behind the car that somebody at the car almost hits them because it's the driver's been shot. So I definitely wanted the big Y to say, this is where we are and all hell is breaking loose. And then it was essential to me to go right into the boy's perspective. This is the trauma that is getting inflicted on this child and these people. But this child is going to be our lifeline through the whole series. And these are the things that are going to be seared on his brain and the images that he'll never be able to unsee or forget. So I storyboarded it and also wrote out all of those key action beats. And then Mm. with the AD, the AD team was extraordinary because we, we wrote the story of what was happening with the background all the way through. And then they went and had to fill in even beyond that. You know, we wrote together. I knew I'd read the book Tulsa Burning. So I had these accounts of true story witnesses, what people went through. So created this kind of sequence of very specific events, whether it was the man coming out of the clothes store with a woman's coat on and the piano in the street, the fire department being held back. We scripted those key set piece moments of action. And then the AD team just, they then did the work of filling in everything in between that. So even to this day, when I rewatch the sequence I'll see something else that I didn't even know they had done. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But so, and then on that sequence, we had four cameras working because we were going live. Yeah. So I had planned the major coverage and when I wanted to see what, again, the AD and the stunt team, I can't, I have to give them a huge shout out as well. Like 
this incredible effort of the team to fill in this whole world beyond these specifically scripted points. Yeah. And, and then, and then do you, do you sort of plan your coverage so that you can then sort of really sculpt it and craft it in the end, like to give yourself options or, or are you more sort of shot for shot knowing how you want it in the edit or do you, do you sort of, shoot loose a bit for that one I shot loose because it was I mean Mm. with the four cameras you know I knew that I had the anchor shots of on the boy's face and the pull and follow Um, but then the POV stuff was looser and like I said with with the four cameras running it was just get everything we could you know obviously there's a lot more footage than is in the in the sequence, you know, and, and there's a lot more I would have loved to put in, but at the same time, it was threading that needle very carefully of, we want to throw people in this place and show them how, and have them feel through this boy's eyes, how horrific and terrifying and traumatizing it was. But if we stay here a hair too long, it tips into gratuitous and it was essential to not indulge in it just for story adrenaline action it, it's such a complex scene and, and and as you were talking about like so important to work with the first aid and obviously it's such a a hot a hot sort of point at the moment with with production about safety and 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 also about emotional security has has, has there been quite a sea shift there in in the industry or and and how important because a lot of people always think like it's about the vision and then try and squeeze as much blood out of the stone sometimes what, what's your kind of I, I was really sort of taken by you saying about safety and emotional security like how, how do you approach that with with crew and and ADs and so forth we took that so incredibly seriously and that was always priority hmm. safety emotionally and physically was by far our priority and, and that's been true of, I've been lucky to be on sets where that's been the priority because we were yeah. reenacting a true story. It added this whole other layer of responsibility. And so um, yeah. in advance of filming that scene, Carrie Bruno, our first AD, requested uh, a rehearsal with about 40 of our background actors in order to prepare them for what we were going to do. And so that they could then be team leaders for each of their set pieces for all the people that were just showing up on the day. We put out kind of display boards with the history of this event. I asked Damon to write a letter to the full cast and crew, just acknowledging um, this is what we're doing and, and giving gratitude to the cast and crew being willing to relive this. And lastly, it was our first day of filming. So on top of that, I asked for a blessing of the set and our producer found a, a wonderful man, a reverend to come and lead a little, well, you know, we, gra- we gathered the whole cast and crew and he said some just incredible words about, about legacy and he just truly gave a blessing of the set. And, uh, you know, and, and I had right, yeah. in preparing, I'd studied how Ava DuVernay pr- approached the bridge sequence in the Selma and um, right. Spielberg on Schindler's List. And so 
you know, just kind of reading, I, you know, that Ava had had the blessing of the set and just really reached out to kind of my peers and then also communicated with the extras as, you know, as in advance, you know, letting them know well ahead what they were signing up for. So no one would be blindsided. Yeah. And I I think that that's probably what resonated, not not just in, in, in that sequence, but just resonated through the whole series is this, you felt there was something in the DNA and there was an ethos in the same way as like if you walk into a company you can feel an ethos when you when you when you watch the series there's a there's a depth to it that you don't often get and particularly the fact because of the fantastical nature ultimately of of, of the of the bigger piece it it kind of got more almost more to the core of watchmen in, in its background than than maybe the, mm-hmm. the the feature film did in that sense of it it felt it felt there was the yeah, the, the the bones of it were, were were well and truly there, and it had been really thought through. and And it, it's really great to hear that, and for people to appreciate, it's not just point the camera and, and look and so forth. There's so much more to think about. Yeah. Oh, I really, I so appreciate that you say that because um, it really was a profoundly special experience for all of us. Um, the you know the crew. Mm you know, it's always, we use that word, like we were like a family, but there was just such incredible um, respect for the material, for each other, real passion for it, like both like, wow, what we're getting to do, but also how important it was, the story we were getting to tell, you know, is far more than just entertainment. And it was very scary to take it on it put all of us really deeply in a shared experience of we're here to give it us, give it its all and, and to support each other through it because the opening of and closing of the pilot was so harrowing to film. And then episode Mm. six, you know, we, we, we touched on very hard, hard emotional content. No. And, and, and I think when you were talking about uh, earlier on about really understanding art in that sense of, of, putting depth into it and it and you can you can make a, a a tv show or a fantastical show that has so much more as a as a cultural reflection not just and it, it did it felt so right for its time and and i i know you, you you grew up in charlottesville and i wondered whether there were there were resonations of what were going on in the world at the time as well and, and your own kind of connection to, to to that space uh very much so you know i read the pilot hmm. for Watchmen. I read it while I was actually home for Christmas 2017. And um, right. Charlottesville, the the march had happened in just that August. And it, you know, it was profoundly disturbing and upsetting, you know, and coming off the election of 2016, there was definitely, I was feeling a political storm that many, many people were. And yeah, this question of what can I do? What can I do with this energy? And when I read the pilot, it was a total gift of this is where I can channel that need to take action. Did you find like, particularly with this series, you're so sort of woven into the whole, because you've got the whole overall look of it. How does that differ to when you're you're doing an episode on a, on an established show or even like maybe the sixth episode of a, like, is that, 
more like passing the baton from one director? Like how how is that cohesion done as opposed to having much more of the worldview over a whole series? Well, directing a pilot and setting the look of a show is is akin to making a feature, coming in and yeah. creating it from ground up, from hiring the crew and then making all of those creative choices. You are you are defining the show. So and that's why I love I love pilots. I love features. Coming in as an episodic director, you're inheriting those big decisions. And I feel like I always felt when I was doing episodic, it might be a little bit more like directing a play where it was really about this episode, this um, and these words. And, you know, I wasn't there to uh, reinvent the box of the aesthetic or costume designs, hair, you know, a lot, Yeah, yeah. a lot of that work was done. So it was like, what can I do to take this pilot? I mean, sorry, this script, this episode and make it as good as it can be. And there's still a tremendous amount of creative work to go into that. You are hundred percent deciding where to put that camera and how to move the cast in the space. And so there's still a huge creative playground but yeah. the broad strokes have been painted. Yeah. And and is it is it a, a slightly strange dynamic? Because, of course, there's a whole crew there that may have been working on the show, and then you, you're coming in, and, and obviously the actors have been working, and, and whereas you don't kind of get to it. What's the dynamic of almost being the new kid on the block sometimes? You are the new kid. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's tricky. It's a very... It's a very tricky, delicate dance and and political. And so you do a lot of homework to find out what the world is that you're walking into and making sure it's a, a good, healthy space. And you really feel like day one, you know, kind of before even getting there, it's easy to get a sense of if you're being received as a welcome guest or a substitute teacher. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 You want to come in as the guest and, and it's really on the show, you know, now that I ran Watchmen and from my experience being a guest director and feeling the difference in how I was brought in, it was very important to me on Watchmen to make sure everybody felt like a welcome guest. And part of that was, me laying the groundwork with the crew and cast of who was coming and then also making sure to deeply prep the visiting directors on on the energy and the people of the show and so yeah. day one is that like first day of camp feeling but it's that crazy thing of by day two your family and by day seven you're sad you have to leave you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and it is it is very much a gamble because so much of how you connect with people is based on chemistry. And sometimes chemistry mm. doesn't work, even if they're good people. Mm. And I'm also rather shy. So it took a lot of work for me to just put on the like the the courage, go in big and you know, and, and respectfully and friendly and you you win people pretty quickly just by 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 being a decent person, you know, I, I learned right away to make sure I said hello to all the actors before ever stepping on set, just so that they knew who I was before I was asking something of them in a scene. When I produced and directed 
Watchmen, I felt for the first time the real gift of having the guest directors because by episode three, four, five, six, seven, like yeah. everyone's getting very tired and also very stretched thin. Yeah. And so to have someone come in with fresh energy and totally dedicated to just this one episode was such a gift. And so it really, suddenly I could see from the other side of the fence, how it was when I had come in as a guest director. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, the, it's a tremendous asset because the way like an actor takes care of just their character and, you know, everybody has very specific jobs to oversee the writers, the producing director, production design, everybody's getting really, everybody's juggling multiple episodes at a time. So that guest director mm is so priceless in terms of saying, this is my baby and this is what it needs to be taken care of and making those demands that other people might not be as protective of it. Yes, yes. And and, and do you find, do you find a, a, a tendency to have frequent collaborators like either as crew or, or as as actors i know you've worked quite a lot with uh, kevin bacon and kira sedgwick for instance who are, who, are, who are two of my favorite kind of actors even from from the early days of when they did rom-coms together and uh do you do you do you, do you find there is a preference that the people you want to regularly collaborate with or is it actually you need a new box of tricks each time so i i love getting to work with previous collaborators, but also see and have experienced the upside of new new people. On Watchmen, mm. it really felt like I got to pull together kind of the greatest hits of my last 10 years of work because I pulled yeah. together crew members from all these different shows I'd been on. Three, The three ADs were people I'd worked with before, Carrie Bruno, Casey Goodall, and Chip Signore. It was amazing to get to work with Regina King again, because we had worked on American Crime right. together. And the DP, yeah. Greg Middleton, we did many seasons of The Killing together. Javier Perez Robe right. uh, yes. shot The Woodsman with me. Andre Preck, who did the pilot, we went to film school together. And had never worked together in all those years, wow, yeah. but had been on many student film sets together. Yeah. But then again, I had a um, new production designer, new costume designer, and we all quickly fell in deep creative love. And then, you know, then I just went and did a pilot this past summer in London. And because it was UK based, right. I didn't bring anyone I had worked with before. And that was also exciting to get to build crew from ground up that were all brand new connections. Right. I used to really envy filmmakers who had always the same DP, same producer, same production designer, editor. Like I, I long for those deep, long collaborations, but at the same time, meeting new people from different walks of life, I think is, is really essential and, and gives a fresh quality to your work. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and, you, you you brought up the woodsman there like that was your first feature and and it, it kind of exploded on the scene in a very strong and it was a very strong piece what what I suppose kind of like how 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 did you get into kind of feature directing or how did you get into that sort of first foray into filmmaking what was the sort of steps into it uh well I went to NYU 
graduate film school. Uh, while I was undergraduate, I majored in art history, but I knew early I wanted to do film. I was just at a school that didn't have a film major. And I'm actually grateful for that because it, it pushed me to study other things. But then um, I kind of snuck into all the grad film classes that I could weasel my way into as an undergraduate. And then I got into NYU for a graduate film, and that was like the deep training. And while there, they made it clear right away that the goal of the program would be to have created a series of short films and to have a feature script ready to go so that you had a visual portfolio saying, this is Hmm. what I can do, and this is the feature I want to do. And, and I feel very lucky because right. um, while there, I was going to the actor studio had a theater season that I would always go to. For, you know, it's directed by Arthur Penn or run by. Wow. And I happened to go see a play and it was The Woodsman. And it was one of those life changing moments where I walked in the theater one person and felt I walked out another in terms of profoundly changed understanding of of the world to be honest you know not to make it so grandiose but it just humanized a person that is so often written off as just the monster and it made me do that deep thinking of what's beyond every headline or sensational newscast or that kind of media. So I approached the playwright, Stephen Fector, and asked if he'd be willing to option the play. And at this point, I had one eight-minute short to show. He took the time and met with me and saw the short, and we started to talk. And then he got cold feet, and that really inspired me. (laughs) It's like he kind of would (laughs) pull back. And so while I was in post-production on my thesis film at NYU, I sat down and I wrote a draft of the script on spec. And I came back to the playwright with a 180-page script and said, this is a is what I would do. You know, and obviously I'll cut it down, but um, I didn't want to cut any of his play dialogue, you know, from the draft. But I took it, I restructured it, and I... I said, this is how I would put it in the world. This is what I see. And so I think he was impressed that I took the time and effort on a total gamble to write a screenplay that might never get made. Based on that, he did agree to let me option the play as long as he came on as a co-writer. That was actually an incredible gift because I, I really loved having a collaborator and having somebody in the writing process equally invested as as I was. I have found mm. writing is obviously extremely hard and um, and very lonesome. And you get a lot of notes. You f- have to figure out how, what notes to take, what not to, to take, what to not take personally, mm. what to take personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And having somebody as, as intimately involved in every word was just very helpful. So I, I optioned it. And while while we worked on the screenplay, I finished my thesis film for NYU and just had an incredible year where 
I submitted the screenplay to the slam dance screenplay competition and it won. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that the same year my thesis film got into Sundance. So I went to Sundance slam dance, you know, their same week, same city, York city. And I was there with a right, yeah. award-winning script and the Sundance admitted um, short. So that was that kind of incredible package that NYU had kind of encouraged us to pursue. And I was yeah. a model student and somehow landed that. But there's a <laughs> wisdom to it. Nice. And so off of that, I got my manager, Melissa Bro, who I still work with today. And then Lee Daniels, the producer at the time who had done Monsters Ball, he read the script and at first asked if he could buy it. And I wouldn't sell it without being attached to direct because I really knew that that was my shot. You know, I had at this point been working on the script three years and I wasn't going to sell that one and then start from ground zero on a new script. And so to his credit, he decided to still produce it with me attached to direct. And I thought that would make it easy, but it was still very challenging to pull together uh, until Kevin Bacon signed on. And the minute he signed on, then the cast just kind of shook, you know, I think that um, it took him, I mean, he, he was taking on the very riskiest of roles and, um, and he came on as an executive producer as well and helped, you know, helped build the cast. And still, it was very challenging to finance. You know, we went into pre-production with half the money and just on the brink of production, got the other half. Um, so it was it was pretty nail-biting the whole way through. Uh, but that is how it came together. I mean, I, I can remember watching it when it, fir- when it first came out and was really, really taken by... It, it's a film in the wrong hands could go so... That, and and it, therefore the direction of it is so what makes it work like the performance is so nicely crafted but it's it's not just about cra- the actor crafting it it's the way it's captured and I, I think that there's, there's an eye there that allows it to be and like you say it's it it doesn't monster it it doesn't it really explores what does it mean what what's the deeper story behind this and this is a really trite thing, and I, I hate, I hate kind of talking about this, but like, with with, with female directors, do you, do you feel like we haven't had enough perspectives like that, and and now the world is changed, like the, there seems to be a more open door now, and that seems to be bringing a whole new perspective, and it, is it a gender thing or is is it? just a, a wider breadth of people are in, in, in the mix. Um, well, I think you're touching on two different things. Yeah. You know, I think okay. that, yeah. you know, it's hard to generalize the a director's touch by gender. You know, I think we're all plenty yeah. of men yeah. Had yeah. May, have made gorgeously sensitive films or probing or, or empathetic. And yeah. in terms of gender, I think clearly me too has cracked open that conversation of, yeah. There needs to be more stories told by non-white male um, directors. There's, I was yeah. part of the Focus on Women Committee here in the Directors Guild, 
And I heard a, the, the motto of the group I just learned yesterday is um, not only about us, but by us. I think that the world is only better to, to you know, be served by seeing and experiencing different points of views, whether it's a museum yeah. or music or film. In terms of how I approached Woodsman, could somebody else? Absolutely. And it wasn't conscious, but right now I realize that the film I studied most deeply in preparing for that film was Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher. You know, and I right, yes, yeah. adore Lynn Ramsey's work, Jane Campion's but also there's plenty of male role models in my film DNA. So yeah. I think it really, I like to think that I watch films gender blind, but I don't at all right. watch some films recently that have infuriated me because they're by male directors who are not seeing their blind spots and there's just misogyny oozing out of yeah. them. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, I watched, yeah, yeah. and so I realized then I have to also look at what are what are my blind spots. Right. For all of us to be good citizens of the world, we will have blind spots, but the first thing we can do is just ask what might they be? And I'm not sure everybody is yeah. asking themselves what are their blind spots. No, there's a, I can't remember which American university, but there's this great test that you can do called the implicit bias test. Mm. And it, it, it's something I kind of come back to frequently because everybody has bias based on our upbringing or whatever. And it's really interesting to kind of keep doing it to see if not only are you changing, but is is culture also changing? So you have these different perspectives on 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 life. And I think the the more the more wide ranging uh, voices that you have, it will because you, you the white straight male <laughs> of old can't have those perspectives on all of those different stories. So the more we have that, the more the more it helps culture as a whole change. Yeah, right. And I'd say to, yeah. I guess what I feel you're saying about Woodsman is um, whether it's the authenticity or just deep dive into who and who this person is and what's making, what's motivating him. You know, in preparation yeah. for that film, again, I did incredible depth of research and I spent, sat in a many um group therapy sessions for offenders with these two female therapists mm. here in the city. And these were people that were court ordered to have treatment. The The women were right. incredible. This was not cozy, touchy feely therapy. This was tough, tough. And they were major offenders. Right. Yeah. You know, they served time for serious crimes. And likewise, I interviewed men who were in jail. I interviewed family members of people who had lost victims. You know, so I really wanted, I didn't dare take it on lightly and made sure mm. to meet with people from all angles so that I didn't just kind of have one singular point of view. One of the moments that I found most heartbreaking on set was when, when Mos Def was performing his scene, or then he's known as Mos Def, as a cop. And, yeah. you know, on paper, it could look like just a real ball buster, insensitive, hard-nosed cop. But as he wove this tale, I suddenly saw through his eyes what he had seen 
and totally felt the validity for his hatred and of this man. And um, he'd seen the worst of the worst. And, and I felt sympathy for mm. this cop for, for what he's lived through. And I think that one of the most difficult things to live with in making that film and I think experiencing that film is on the one hand, you are rooting for this person to, to heal and to, to reintegrate. But on the other, he's done something you can only despise and hate him for. And, and I had those days on set where it was just like, I felt my heart breaking for him and I hated him. And there's no resolution. Yeah. You know, that's, that's it. You're going to live with those, that dichotomy and that clash of feelings. And, and I, I think, I think that's, that's the essence of the film. It, it doesn't condemn and, and it doesn't uh, let or try and feel simple. It, it, it's constantly walking on those eggshells. And I suppose that's, that's true of so many things. There is no clear defining line. And do you find if you were giving advice to directors, how do you soak this up in life from like, how do you watch people or how, how, how do you get both looks and feels and music? And like, how do you soak that in as a director so that you can then interpret that when you're crafting these stories? That's a great question. I don't think there's any one way at all, but I think mm. being curious to what make people, what makes people tick and and being an observer, yeah. if ever I'm like sitting at a traffic light or waiting and feeling bored, quote unquote, I just start watching people because I love like looking at the faces of people yeah. driving by or how people are crossing traffic. Like to me, it's all just time to sit and research like, oh, look at how the background actors were moving if I was doing a scene where somebody's driving down the street. So yeah, it's, yes. it's observation and then, or research, you know, and really deep dive research. Yeah. Um, music is a different thing. That's a more, that's a tool that you exercise. And whenever I feel a little unmoored in, in what I'm doing or what I'm drawn to, a friend once gave great advice, just, just sit down and watch a movie you love. And it just like, it just causes fireworks yeah. again. It's like, oh, that's, that's who I am because it is so subjective how you handle all the tools. So just reminding yourself of what you love, because the only thing that will make you either succeed or stand out or is, is being true to your vision. That's the only thing that makes you unique because there's thousands of us directors yeah. and, and all of us there's so many people capable of directing the same script. And the only thing you can offer is your unique point of view and whether or not that's received is up to the audience or, you know, or whether or not you're hired is up to whoever you're working for, but it's, it comes down to just, do they want to see through your mind's eye versus another? And that's, and again, that's not personal. Yeah. That's just taste. Yes, and I, th I think that that's so important for creatives, artists to develop what their taste is, and then and then and then pass that on. And I'm I'm conscious of um, when people interpret your work, 
and particularly like like critics or or, or even sort of uh, uh, film theorists. I I, I once worked. Uh, I started out early in life with Andrea Arnold, and she was very vehement about. I don't care what people. I, I don't want people to interpret my work. I just kind of do it. I just wondered what are your feelings about how work is interpreted, particularly by mm-hmm. film theory and so forth, or. And are, are you injecting meaning into it or are, or do you prefer audience to take what they want from it? It's a great question because I've been actually <laughs> thinking about that a lot recently. I, I definitely do not make anything for the critics. Symbolism, hmm. sometimes I have things in mind and a lot of times I don't. But, you know, I, I found myself because I did study art history, I've often wondered you know, did Caspar David Friedrich know that this analysis was going to be made of this landscape painting with all of these things infused? Like, did he imbue it with all of this, with this coded symbolism? I don't know. I'm sure there's answers. I think I've tried to not read much of the feedback on my work, I've, you know, I've had students send essays, you know, and, and that's fascinating because it's exciting to see if it it inspires people to look for those things. But I don't, you know, I think I, I come to it number one from story, you know, does this, does the story leave me thinking? Does it leave me changed? Does it leave me with something I'm going to think about days beyond the theater. With Watchmen, it was about kind of tucking in Easter eggs or paying homage to the comic. I think it's really case by case, just how much there is left to interpret, you know. But I I definitely haven't gone into a project at all with the intention of like, this symbolizes X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I think criticism is really complicated right now, especially... um, I'm I'm angry at criticism in general right now. I feel <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I, I'm seeing directors get away with a lot. You know, more renowned directors seem to be getting yeah. hall passes that earlier director, younger directors might not get. And I'm just seeing the lack of objectivity, and and they are dangerously powerful. Um, so I'm very suspect of of the critics unfortunately no and it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange industry around it and there's a whole machine to it and and i suppose that sort of ties in one of with one of my last questions is what is the relationship of a director with like the studios and and the the streamers and then all of this other kind of the noise of of hollywood and all of the bs that kind of goes around it Mm-hmm. How how do you interact with that? Because there's there's the making the art, and then there's all the other stuff of of having to sell it and and be involved with that. What's that like? That part is very challenging. It depends on mm. personality and such. Again, I mean, I choose to live in New York City for a very very concrete reason that yeah. I don't want to live in the film industry. I I want to live amongst my family and my friends that have lives well outside of making movies and that I think just keeps me connected to I want to say well and not that they don't have real life it's it just keeps me grounded in 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 this world because 
you know, Hollywood and what we're making, it's make believe. And we work really hard and we take it seriously as we should, because each project is, it's an, you know, astronomical cost, you know, even a low budget movie to be like, oh, I only have a million dollar budget. Like that's a huge number. And so with that number comes enormous responsibility. And that's where I see my duty to the financier or the studio is um, to take that number and treat it with the utmost respect and do my best to make sure uh, that it is that they make their money back, frankly, you know, and that it receives an audience. And, and I'm very aware that, you know, as much as I want to make art and my art pieces, you know, I need to make sure that it's stories that will reach, speak to people. If, if that didn't matter to me, I would be in a different art form, a more pure potentially art form, whether it's photography or painting. Times I wish I could create just to please myself. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think with that kind of a price tag, if, I, if I'm not going to finance it myself, mm. I have to be respectful of trying to reach an audience. And in terms of navigating the politics of the industry, it's there are many incredible, incredible producers and studio heads out there. And it's, it's really just making sure to, as best you can in the early days, figure out if you're creatively aligned. Because when you're not, or when it falls apart, it's, it's so profoundly painful. And, um, and yeah. I've had that happen as well. And so now I know what kind of landmines to look out for. And uh, (laughs) the promotion of a film, I mean, frankly, that is a fun part of it, you know, because you do all this work and that's like the final little 1% of, of relief and like go out and celebrate it's in the world. But then the 99% of the rest is, is hard work in the trenches, um, hopefully with really smart, supportive collaborators. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the industry has shifted. A little. I mean, I, I, I made a, a, a documentary in the late '90s about Cannes and the circus of Cannes, just as, as an almost parody of it. And I think those days are very much gone. I think I don't think it's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot less of the the player, <laughs> I suppose, in in Hollywood now as there was then. But um, it, it's it's a constantly evolving thing. And I suppose there's so much content that people want now, and there's so much opportunity for different kinds of stories. I suppose my last question to you, because I'm conscious of our time after the Watchmen, I think people are really eager. What, what's next from you? If you're allowed to talk about that, what's on the horizon in terms of types of worlds or, or types of stories that you're, you're working on? Well, I'm attached to direct an adaptation of the wizard of Oz. So wow. <laughs> What <laughs> one of my all-time favorites. So you're, you're, it's uh, I, I imagine that's quite a, a hot property to tackle with. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that's a gasp of here of horror or a gasp of excitement, but um, <laughs> probably both. That that is a gasp of that with you because of, 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 particularly because of Watchmen. That is a gasp of excitement because it won't be. I, I was fearful once that it would just be a sort of Tim Burton 
remake of, of of i think he he got into a bit of too much of that but i think your your take on it would be very interesting so so is that right. that still yeah so that's um we're in script development on that yeah. i am developing or in script on another feature for participant that's based on is much more grounded and it's based on a true story of journalists who crack this horrific story of men being held as slaves on fishing vessels Coast of Indonesia. So that's kind of the extreme opposite of Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Very much based in reality and incredible story of a group of female journalists that really changed the world. And then on the television side, I'm in development with a friend on a project based on a beautiful book called That Time I Loved You mm. by Carrie Ann Learn, based on uh, kind of the American dream in the late 70s, but through the eyes of young Korean and Chinese girls. And just saying, looking at the American dream through Americans who are often not assumed to be American. And okay, yeah. yeah, and then a couple other things. So I've, I've been in development on a lot. The, I, it's hard to say the word lucky in conjunction with the pandemic, but I was lucky in the sense of timing that Watchmen was releasing when the pandemic hit and yeah. um, and I was in development on all these things I could work on from home. And then I last summer, as I said, I went and directed um, the baby for sister pictures uh, for Sky and HBO yeah. series will come out in spring of next year. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I read I read the synopsis for that and I'm very intrigued. It sounds fascinating. It's very fun. Very fun. Nice. So really what I'm saying is um I'm, I definitely have things in the pipeline, and each one is very different than Woodsman or Watchmen mm. from its each other. One of the big, because you were asking about how I navigate Hollywood, um, and and I am yeah. I'm, I'm I'm if I'm not good at it, you know, I don't go to mixers, I don't make conversation easily. I'm I'm not a I'm not a bravado. Presence. So I really respond to the people that are drawn to me based on the work. Like I want my connection to the people I work with or the industry or the audience really to be about the work. I have no interest in myself being in the public eye at all. Yeah. And I think that when you asked about how's the industry shifted in terms of being receptive to other kind of directors. One of the things I feel like we are showing or teaching people by having someone like me as a director is a different style of directing. I am not six feet tall. I do not walk onto a set loud and, and with bravada. Um, I'm very small and you're hearing my voice. And, and I've definitely had moments where that's been challenged, like that it's, it doesn't, it didn't compute at first to either crew or cast or, or certain producers that the person in charge was there, was actually in charge. And, and it's took, so I, I had to have those days where I got loud and big to kind of act more like what people thought a director would act like. Right. But more importantly, where through these teams that I've 
you know, whether through my style and seeing it succeed, people are getting accustomed to a different style of directing and that it can be quiet, but still extremely firm and forceful and direct, but in a very quiet way. And, and I think, um, you know, I've had people walk onto my set and be astonished by how quiet it is, but I feel like, again, that's not a gender thing. That's just a style thing. No, but I, I, I think, I think that is a great point. I mean, I, I observe it. There is definitely a trait within, I see it within students where the men I think because society kind of gives them permission to speak and play up more that sometimes in situations men will take over a situation and you, you do see this kind of role of, Oh, I don't want to rock the boat or, or I, I need, you know, I, I, I think maybe Maya and I spoke about this, about this. I hear, I hear too many female students talking about imposter syndrome within taking kind of leadership roles. And I think, that that is something that's been very prevalent in sort of film and television and, and and that that misses so much if if you have to be a shouty michael bay person you know so yeah. so yeah. it's it's great that you say that because i think that can be inspiring to, and it, it, it's not about gender as you say it can be inspiring to people who are not that big yeah. kind of loud ego person because there are men who are like that as well so i, I think and we need that perspective because often that's more cerebral and more reflective. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest compliments I got very early on and has stayed with me forever was, I forget where, I must have been promoting Woodsman um, with Kira Sedgwick. And yeah. I heard her say, she described me as the mouse that roared. And I was just so like, <laughs> oh, my God, I didn't know. I didn't know I roared, you know, because I yeah. didn't. But that she could see that force um, that I wasn't even sh conscious that I projected meant so much to me. And, and that she spoke of it admiringly and as a strength of my approach as directing. Yeah. So I've, that's just stayed with me like a gem throughout my career that that, that, that that's a great tagline <laughs> the mouse the rod yeah. i'm really conscious i've taken up lots of your time nicole and I'm, I'm i'm so thankful that you took this time to have have this chat i really enjoyed it uh lots of insights i suppose as as, as a parting gift would, would what what words of uh, encouragement would you give to to somebody just starting out tomorrow do it <laughs> go do it <laughs> don't give up passion and perseverance but if you want to do it you you have to you have to make it happen but the only thing that will make you succeed is is persistence because it's it's hard but um go do it great thank you so much for your time it's been wonderful to catch up and uh, uh I, I hope uh, I'm, I'm now really looking forward to wizard of oz and the baby <laughs> so, so we'll catch, catch those on site thank you so much for your time thank you take care thank you bye, -bye. bye. Bet on myself and I proved it. I know the industry ruthless. I'm really a threat for nuisance. The Chevy is dropping is ruthless. Think I'm the one and I proved it. I know the industry foolish. Think we're seeing the movies. It really ain't dropping out of coolness. Look at me struggling right on the bubble. That was the end of season four, and we'll be back in the new year with season five.